We are continuing in the book of Acts, beginning in chapter 21. If you're using a pew Bible, I believe it's on page 931 that you'll be turning to. And we're picking up in the middle of rather lengthy account of what's happening to Paul after he has arrived in Jerusalem and headed up to the temple. He's met with the Jewish Christians there before going to the temple. And when he gets to the temple, it's good for us to recall as we read today the state that Paul is in as our passage begins. He's just been drugged out of the temple by an angry mob that was stirred up by the Jews from Asia who had followed him there to Jerusalem. The mob had been beating him with the intent of killing him until Roman troops, a most unlikely savior, steps in and grabs Paul and pulls him through the crowd, doesn't just walk him, escort him. In fact, they have to carry him through the crowd because of the violence of the Jews there surrounding Paul. And as our passage begins, he was, as one commentator describes him, a sorry figure, bruised, battered, begrimed, and disheveled. But as this commentator points out, and as we will see as we read our passage, he is quickly in command of his situation. So let's read from Acts chapter 21, verse 37, into Acts chapter 22, verse 29. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they had heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strictest manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering the prison to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished." As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came to Damascus. 
and one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And when the tribune also, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. This is our text for this morning. Well, I recently heard it said that apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith, apologetics used to be about explaining the church to the world, but now it's more about explaining the world to the church. Are you confused by the world we live in? Would it be nice to have someone come and explain all the ways that the world has changed in the last decade, or the last five years, or the last two years? Do you struggle to come up with biblical answers to the shifting landscape of questions posed by the world in which we live? Do you know how to defend your faith in ways that our world would actually receive or even understand. To communicate and explain and defend our faith before a watching world, we must first understand that watching world. We must understand what it thinks about things like faith and truth, about right and wrong, about goodness and beauty. But we need more than just a knowledge of what our world thinks. We also need to know how our world thinks. 
how it goes about defining what is true and right and good, what its sources of authority are on these subjects, and how these arguments are being made. When we do, we see that the world around us is changing, and it seems to be doing so more quickly now than in recent memory. The way the world understands the human individual is changing. What is being defined as good and true and beautiful is changing. How the world shapes its arguments about what is good and true and beautiful is changing. Where the world looks to find peace and happiness and human flourishing is changing. And as I studied our text for this week, I found myself wondering how our world would see and interpret what takes place here. A text that contains an oppressing mob and an oppressed individual. A text where Paul uses his personal story as a form of self-defense. A text where Paul is ultimately canceled by the culture around him. As I read this text, I see themes emerging that have become hot-button topics in our world today. And I wondered, what does our text have to say about those issues? Does it confirm them or does it refute them? How does it speak to them? So my goal this morning as we walk through our text is to try to answer some of these questions, to see what Luke's account has to say about four hot-button issues in the world around us. And in so doing, I hope to provide a little help in explaining the world to the church and to see if the testimony of Scripture confirms the direction our world is headed or if it refutes it. I'm going to do so in four points that are in your bulletin two of which are correct, two of which need correcting. Not because anyone in the office made mistakes, but because my thought clarified after I submitted them. Our first point being oppression or opportunity, second being self-actualizing or self-identifying. The third and fourth points have changed. The third being deconstruction or redirection. And the fourth being canceled or the way of the cross. And so long as I'm changing everything in your bulletin, I'd like to change the title of my sermon as well. (laughs) Is that allowed? (laughs) To the world and the way of the cross. Well, turning back to our text for today, we see that much of what we read is a repetition of what we've already heard, right? We know this story. We've already heard it. It's from Acts 9. Which raises the question, what do we do with a text that largely repeats what we've already heard? Do we just pull up the sermon from Acts 9, have the sound booth, pull it up on the screen back here and pipe it back in? I'm sure we could use some reminding. Don't remember everything that was said. Or do we just skip that part of the passage and focus on the events that frame Paul's testimony with all the stuff about the Romans and speaking Greek and, and almost being flogged and being a citizen? Or is there something different going on here than what is happening in chapter 9? Something worthy of our attention and our time and our focus? Probably not. Let's just go to lunch. (laughs) Just kidding. There are a few things I'd like to point out about Acts 22 as we begin this morning. Things that help me to see that this is not just a passage that we can just skip and move on. 
First, we should recall that when we read about Paul's Damascus Road conversion back in chapter 9, we were reading Luke's account, weren't we? We were reading Luke's description of those events. But here, here we have Paul's own testimony in his own words of what happened to him while he was on the Damascus Road. And so it gives us a window into those events through Paul's eyes. Second, in Acts chapter 9, Luke was simply narrating the events that were taking place as the gospel continued to spread from Jerusalem to Samaria and Judea, and especially around Acts 9 to the ends of the earth, as Paul is the one who would take it there. But here Paul's testimony serves a different purpose. It's not being recounted as part of the story of the spread of the gospel. We're not reading a narrative here. Rather, it's being recounted by Paul in a speech. And not just any speech, but a speech for the purpose of self-defense. This is Paul's apology speech. He's defense of who he is before the angry mob. And this, too, gives our, uh, our account just a new way of looking at it. Finally, the audience in Acts chapter 9 is simply the readers of Luke's second book. And here, the audience is still the readers of Luke's second book, but it's also, in the context, a Jewish mob. A mob that has just beaten Paul up and and wanted to kill him and has had him arrested, or he's had to be arrested, and they're boiling over with anger, and that also shapes how we read this passage. So each of these differences from Acts 9 help us to see some important things about this passage and how it differs from that one back in Acts chapter 9. It also helps us to ask some helpful interpretive questions that we might be able to get more at the meaning of what's happening here. It helps us to ask not just what happened to Paul when he was converted, but why is Paul telling these people about his conversion? How does he tell them about his conversion? And what does he put into that account? What does he leave out of it? And what does he hope it's going to accomplish? How do the crowds respond to Paul's testimony? So with those in mind, let's move to the first part of our passage, revisiting the end of Acts chapter 21 in our first point this morning, oppression or opportunity. As our passage begins, we find Paul beat up and chained up, but by no means has he given up. He seems to be getting started. Without skipping a beat, he turns to the Roman commander who has just saved his life, but who has also taken the first steps to imprisoning Paul. And he does something very shrewd. He asks him a question. He asks a polite question. May I say something to you? And he does it in the man's mother tongue. He asks it in Greek. Clearly, it catches the soldier's attention, and by doing it in this way, it accomplishes two things simultaneously. First, it clears up a misunderstanding that the tribune had formed about who Paul was. He'd mistaken Paul for an Egyptian who had stirred up a revolt some three years previously, a revolt that the historian Josephus tells us was carried out by 4,000 men to overthrow the Romans, a revolt that had been crushed by Felix, the Roman governor, but not before the Egyptian ringleader and revolutionary escaped. By addressing the tribune in Greek, Paul made it clear he is no Egyptian 
but rather a fellow Greek-speaking man. Now, this is interesting because we know that this soldier himself was most likely Greek. We know it from his name that we learn later on in the passage. He has a Greek name. And when he asks Paul, do you speak Greek? He's probably not asking him, you know, how many languages do you speak? But he's saying to him, you speak Greek like a Greek. And Paul would have, having been raised in Tarsus. So he sees in Paul someone who is somewhat of a kindred spirit. And this affords Paul a second thing. By addressing the tribute in this way, Paul earns himself the opportunity to speak to those who have just attempted to kill him, saying to the tribune, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Now, before we look at Paul's testimony and what he actually says, let's pause for a moment to consider the Apostle Paul as he stands before this angry mob. Let's pause to consider what is foremost on Paul's mind as he faces this mob that's been stirred up by the Jews from Asia who've done nothing but make his life difficult ever since he first met them. Let's consider whether Paul in this moment was focused more on the oppression he was experiencing or on the opportunity it afforded him. The idea of oppression is our first venture into what our world is thinking about and talking about a lot these days. There's much talk about who are the oppressors and who are the oppressed and what should be done in response to these observations. Who should be elected, who should not? What needs to be reformed or done away with altogether? Which trials ought to go a certain way and what does it mean if they don't? And who is at fault? In our text for today, we get a window into how Paul the Apostle responded in real time to the oppression he was experiencing. Now, it should be pointed out that oppression is defined as prolonged, cruel, and unjust treatment. So it could be argued that Paul is not quite yet the victim of oppression per se, given that the treatment he's experiencing is relatively new in his life. But when we look at the long view and we look at Paul and those who would follow in his footsteps, we see that he is at the beginning of a storyline of a people who are going to be oppressed, namely the church. That said, Paul, at his point in life here, is certainly being vehemently opposed by the people around him. He certainly is the victim of injustice. And were it to continue for Paul and people who would follow in his paths, which it will, we would call it oppression. So how does Paul respond? Does he cry out for justice? Or does he do something else? Well, it's important for us to see that justice is not far from Paul's mind. Because by the end of our passage, that is exactly what he's doing. He's saying, I am a Roman citizenship. I'm a Roman citizen. This is unjust. You can't flog me uncondemned. But I want to point out simply that it's not the first place he goes. Instead, Paul zeroes in on the opportunity his situation has afforded him. Amazingly, with very little time to process what has just happened, probably with fight-or-flight responses still pumping adrenaline through his veins, with an increasing awareness of every punch and blow he just endured on his body, with chains on his arms and soldiers on his sides and a ravenous crowd in his face, Paul says, 
I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. In preparing for the evening of prayer for the persecuted church a few weeks back, I reached out to a number of our global outreach partners to ask if there was a way that the church is being persecuted in their lives that we could, could pray for on that night. And as I reached out to our two partners in Indonesia, um, people who for security reasons we don't use their names on uh, live streams, we call them Mr. O, we could call the other one the K family, if you know who they are, you'll know who I'm talking about. And I was asked by them to pray for the conversion of people who strongly persecute the church because they found that persecutors, once converted, make great missionaries. One of our partners went on to tell me about one such person, a guy who had a criminal record before coming to Christ. A guy who had spent jail already for his crimes before coming to Christ, but who now is a church planter. He described this man and men like him as wild men, courageous, fearless. And he went on to explain that this man was now in prison again, this time for sharing Christ. And while in prison... He had the opportunity to lead 39 prisoners to Christ. And if that isn't amazing enough, it turns out that the majority of the men he led to Christ were men from an unreached people group, from a people group in Indonesia that Christians had not been able to get the gospel to. And here he was in prison converting them and they're bringing the gospel back to their people. Paul was the OG of persecuted, uh, persecutors turned pastors. If you don't know what that means, you can ask one of my younger students. I'm just making sure they're still listening here. <laughs> he was a wild man for Christ. He was courageous and fearless. But more than any of those things, he was also filled with a love for the people who were oppressing him. And so he asks if he can speak to the crowd and tell them about what Jesus has done for them. Done for him, rather. Well, in a day and age when we are hearing a lot about oppression, a lot about systemic forms of oppression, a lot about who the oppressors are and who are the oppressed, and about the need for social justice and reform, I think it is important for the church to be made aware of Paul's example. To recognize that in his moment of being oppressed, his first reaction was to see it as an opportunity for the gospel. To share about Jesus Christ while also recognizing that his justice wasn't a distant second in his mind. And he appeals to it in the verses that follow. I think this is important for us to see because I'm afraid the world around us and the cultural climate in which we live may encourage us to think that the push for justice needs to come before the proclamation of the gospel. That the establishment of my rights takes priority over encouraging sinners to repent. But that's not what we see here from Paul, and I don't think we see it from Paul because he didn't see his oppressors simply as oppressors. 
He saw them as people who were oppressed themselves. People who were oppressed by sin and Satan, the flesh, and a wrong understanding of God. His oppressors needed Jesus just as much as he did. And so he takes the opportunity to tell them. Is that how you're wired? Is that how we're wired? Are we wired to give the gospel before we get justice? Can we see those who oppress us as being oppressed themselves? Oppressed by a far worse oppressor? Sin? Satan? And in need of a savior? That's the example that Paul lays before us this morning at the outset of our passage. Well, moving into our second point for today, we recall that prior to being captured by the Romans, Paul had been captured by Christ. And that is why he wants to tell the Jewish mob in front of him. That's what he wants to tell them. Our second point, self-actualizing or self-identifying. Our next two points are both an analysis of Paul's speech in Acts chapter 22. Both of them aim to answer the question, what is Paul doing when he gives his testimony to the crowd and why is he doing it? As we've already read, Paul calls to attention the crowd and then explains to them how it is that he became a Christian. He begins with his past, telling them about his birth and his education and his former way of life and how he persecuted Christianity, known as the way, by his audience, and how the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem, some who may have even been in the crowd, could vouch for him. He then tells about his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, about Jesus' appearance to him in a bright light, such that he was blinded and needed to go to Ananias to receive his sight again before being baptized into the faith. Finally, he tells about a second vision he had of Jesus while praying in the temple in Jerusalem. And it's in this vision that Paul relays Jesus' calling upon his life to go to the Gentiles, a calling he received on the Damascus Road. But in his story here, in his testimony here, he puts it in his vision account where Paul must have, or where Jesus must have underlined it once again. He needs to go to the Gentiles. And it's at this point that the crowd shouts him down and calls for his removal from the face of the earth. So what is Paul doing here? Why, when faced with an angry mob, does Paul give his testimony? Why doesn't he launch into a sermon about all the ways that Jesus fulfilled the Jewish prophecies about the Jewish Messiah? Why doesn't he call the mob's attention to Isaiah's prophecy that says Israel was going to be a light to the Gentiles, to the nations, in order to explain how Jesus would be sending him to the Gentiles? Why doesn't he dispel the rumors against himself and clarify what he teaches about the law and the people of God and the temple? Why does Paul just give his testimony? One suggestion that might come from our modern mindset is that Paul is doing something called self actualizing. Self-actualizing is a term that was popularized by psychologist Abraham Maslow in the mid-1900s, but has found increasing popularity in our day and age to describe the path to true happiness and well-being. 
This is the path of introspection, of looking inside oneself to discover who you truly are, and then self-actualizing that truth by making decisions and surrounding yourself with people who support those decisions as you seek to become the truest form of yourself, all in pursuit of happiness and fulfillment. To give an innocuous example of how this might play out, a person may discern that they are, at their core, an artist. And so they self-actualize by orchestrating their life in such a way that they can give themselves to and be encouraged to give themselves to the creation of art. But it is also the mindset that leads to statements such as, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. Since self-actualization is so popular now, I think it is important to ask, is that what Paul is doing here? Is he sharing his testimony, his story of who he is, as a means of explaining what is truest for him? Is he defending himself before this crowd by explaining that being a Christian is just the truest form of himself? Is he aiming to win the crowd's empathy, seeking their acceptance for who he has found himself to be, while also empowering them to discover their own deepest truths and become who they feel called to be? I don't think so. I don't think Paul is self-actualizing. The story itself shows he isn't, because the conclusions he's coming to and the course he's on is not the product of introspection, of looking inside himself. Rather, it is the product of outside intervention. Jesus Christ has stopped him in his tracks and turned him around. So what is Paul doing if he's not self-actualizing? When we look at the details Paul shares in his testimony here and compare it to the other places in Scripture where his conversion is described, places like Acts 9, Acts 26, or Philippians 3, what we see is that this account of his conversion, of his story, is that it is given in a way that would have been particularly compelling for his Jewish audience. We see this when Paul begins his defense by speaking to the crowd as he had spoken to the Greek soldier in their heart language, the Hebrew dialect, most likely Aramaic here. He spoke to the people in their heart language, and then he invites them to listen to him by saying, not, listen up, you thugs, but by addressing them as brothers and fathers. He identifies himself as a Jew raised in Jerusalem, educated by a prominent Jerusalem Pharisee. He calls the law the law of our fathers. He relates to the crowd on their zeal for the things of God, saying, the zeal you're showing by beating me up is the same zeal that I had for imprisoning Christians. He identifies Jesus as a Palestinian Jew by using the full name Jesus of Nazareth. His conversion is confirmed by Ananias, whom he describes a devout man, according to the law and well spoken of by all the Jews. 
And in Ananias' words back to Paul, Ananias used very Jewish-friendly ways of talking about the Messiah. He refers to Jesus as the righteous one, a Jewish term for the Messiah. And when Paul receives his commission to go to the Gentiles, he communicates it not the first time he received it on the Damascus Road, but a later time he received it while praying in the Jewish temple. In everything Paul says, he is stressing his personal loyalty to his Jewish origins and to his faith. And I believe he does so not as a means of self-actualizing, but of self-identification. That is to say, he does it to identify with his audience. He wants them to see all the ways that he is like them, so that he might earn their ear and clearly communicate what has caused him to become who he is now. Now, before we move on to our next point, I'd like to point out that while Paul is not guilty of self-actualization here, we oftentimes are. The idea that we need to live in line with our feelings is very much something we wrestle with each and every day. It's not just the transgender community that finds themselves doing this. It's also anyone who says, I know I'm right because what I do makes me feel good. Or who says, I know you're wrong because what you've done, what you say, doesn't support me. We're all guilty of living by ethics based on feelings. Of finding justification in simply being me. Being true to who I am. And of praying I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like those other people. Recognizing this helps us to be humble and to show compassion when we see it in others. And compassion towards others is the product of being able to identify with them, just as we see Paul doing here. When we see others who believe differently from us, who think differently from us, who reason differently from us, one question we need to ask ourselves is, how am I just like them? To do so opens a door for us to love those who we see as being different from us, even when those who are different from us might even be actively oppressing us. That is to say, identifying with others helps us to see not just oppression, but opportunities, and opens a door to our being able to share the gospel. And that was Paul's goal here, to identify with the crowd so that they might hear and receive the story of what Jesus has done in Paul. Which brings us to our third point, deconstruction or redirection. The conclusion of the last point was that Paul doesn't use his personal story as a means of self-actualization, but our world might offer another possibility Another possible explanation for why Paul uses his own personal testimony and self-defense. And it's the possibility that Paul is trying to deconstruct Judaism before his Jewish audience. Pastor and theologian Jonathan Lehman helps to explain what we mean by deconstruction in an article from the most recent edition of the Nine Marks Journal. For those doing deconstruction, Lehman writes, the name of the game is not my understanding of the Bible versus your understanding of the Bible. It's my understanding of the Bible versus your story. 
And by story, I mean people's personal stories, their lived experiences, as well as those stories writ large in the histories of a people and documented by social scientists. Deconstruction doesn't begin with exegesis, but with exegeting the exegete. That is to say, deconstruction doesn't begin with trying to understand the Bible, but with trying to understand the one who is arguing from the Bible, and then deconstructing their argument based not on what they are saying or arguing, but on who they are as a person. Perhaps an example of deconstruction would be helpful. A person, a pastor, a theologian, a a regular member of a church might say, I believe that husbands should be the head of a family based on my understanding of Ephesians chapter 5. To which the one deconstructing the argument would say, of course you do. You're a man. And that interpretation serves to keep you in your position of power. But I've lived long enough to know that wives can lead a household just as good as a husband. Or another example of deconstruction, the one doing deconstruction might look at the argument that I made earlier in this sermon emphasizing Paul's situation as an opportunity for the gospel before it being an opportunity to correct oppression and injustice. They might look at that observation and say, well, of course you'd see it that way. You're a white man, one of the primary oppressors in our world today. Of course you'd want to make addressing the injustice of impression a secondary issue. This is what's happening in deconstruction, and it is yet another way we see our world changing in the way that it thinks and the way that it reasons. But could it be that Paul is doing this very same thing? He is, after all, responding to the theological arguments that have been made against him, the arguments that he is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Isn't that what the Jews were saying about Paul? And he does not respond with a Bible-saturated argument. In other words, he's not arguing Bible against Bible. Rather, he responds with his own personal story. Is Paul pitting his story against their scriptures? Well, to answer that question, I think we must first observe that his accusers weren't making a very theologically sound argument themselves. If they think it's unacceptable on biblical grounds to speak against the people of Israel and the temple, then they probably need to go back and reread the prophets. And if they think that Paul is teaching people against the law, then maybe they could get an early edition of his letter to the Romans and see how he upholds what the law teaches and uses it to show our need for a savior. So Paul can't necessarily be committing the sin of deconstructing deconstructing by pitting his story against their scriptures because their arguments aren't necessarily from scripture. But why doesn't Paul just point that out? Why doesn't he just take scripture and prove them wrong? Why does he tell his testimony? What does that serve in defending himself? Well, the careful reader will see that the story Paul is really telling here and the story any of us tell when we give our testimonies is not our story. Rather, it's the story of how God has invaded our story and redirected it, bringing it in line with his story. When Paul tells his story, he's not trying to deconstruct Judaism. Rather, he's trying to show his adherence to Judaism. 
but not Judaism as his crowd understood it. Rather, Judaism as the prophets in their own scriptures understood it. Paul's story is one that highlights the fulfillment of prophecies made to the Jewish people. Prophecies like the prophecy of a Messiah who would come and save his people. Prophecies like the prophecy that the Jews would be the light to the nations in a day and age when God's people were being transformed. When they were like dry bones that had been given flesh. People with God's spirit within them. People who didn't just know the law in their heads but had it written on their hearts. People whose sins had been forgiven. Thus Paul's story, it it isn't in opposition to the Jewish scriptures. Rather, it's in line with them. It is the story of a life being lived, Paul's life, as if Jewish prophecies were yet unfulfilled, only to be redirected by the very fulfillment of those prophecies, namely Jesus Christ, so that he might live in line with them. And Paul's transformed life is the evidence that this has happened. That's why when Paul, praying in the temple, Jesus telling him it's time to get out of Jerusalem because they won't accept your testimony about me, that's why Paul says back to Jesus in his temple vision, but what about my transformed life? It's why he says to Jesus, Lord, They themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. The point being, Jesus, why are you telling me to get out of Jerusalem? How could they possibly not accept my testimony about you? Look at who I was. And look how I've been transformed. His life had been redirected by Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. And his transformation was the evidence. And he wanted his Jewish brethren to experience what he had experienced. But Jesus says, go. I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And Jesus' command, Jesus' words that, that they would not accept his testimony is corroborated by the accounts that we read elsewhere in Acts of the Jews in Jerusalem who plotted to kill Paul then. A plot we see playing out once again as the Jewish mob calls for his death. Jesus knew then what Paul sees here again. The evidence of Paul's transformed life would not be enough for them to accept Christ. Now that's hard to swallow for the reader of Acts. It causes us to ask, why not? Why wasn't Paul's redirected life enough to convince the Jews... That what he taught was really in line with their scriptures and was in fact the fulfillment of their scriptures. To answer that question, we must understand the relationship between truth and power. Jonathan Lehman explains that for the person doing deconstruction, the assumption is that people believe only in truths that keep them in power. Thus, in the act of deconstruction, one goal is to challenge the truths that keep their opponents in power and to redefine truth in a way that aims to correct that power structure, resulting in the deconstructionist's own rise to power. It is what Lehman calls truth in the service of power. 
We see in the Gospels that one of the reasons the Jewish leaders struggled so much with Jesus was because he was a threat to their power. That power struggle continues on in Acts with the Jews and Paul. One example being Paul's ministry in Thessalonica, where following Paul's preaching, we are told that some Jews were persuaded to join him, as were many devout Greeks and not a few leading women. A situation of which Paul tells us that the Jews were jealous and stirred up a mob that sought to bring Paul to an end. Sound familiar? It sounds a lot like what's happening in our passage today. When truth operates in the service of power, anything can be true, so long as it keeps the one claiming the truth in a position of power. Or another way we might say it is, when truth is in the service of power, no truth can be accepted that might jeopardize one's power. When we read that when Paul tells of his being sent to the Gentiles, that the Jewish crowd reacts in a way that ends Paul's speech prematurely and calls for his death, I think what we are seeing is the Jewish response to an attack on their power. Because this truth, this truth that the Gentiles were welcome members of the people of God, more than anything else Paul had said up to that point, threatened their power. It was the truth that Gentiles were now welcome members of God's people and they didn't need to go through Judaism to get there. In fact, it was the truth that Jews needed to go through Jesus just like the Gentiles needed to go through Jesus in order to be saved. And this truth was too much for them to swallow. So they came up with murderous plots against Paul, the one Jesus had entrusted with preaching this truth. And he might not threaten their power, that he might not threaten their power, and that they might live by another truth. A truth that said anyone who speaks against this people, or our law, or this temple, must die. If deconstruction is one way of reasoning in our modern world, if our world operates on the assumption that truth is in the service of power, well, then how should we operate as Christians? Well, we are supposed to be the opposite. We are called to live out a posture of power in the service of truth. That's what we see in Paul's testimony. That is what he is communicating to the people who are before him. Paul had plenty of power before he met Christ. In addition to his Roman citizenship, he had his Jerusalem upbringing, he had his top-notch education, he had his religious zeal, and he had letters from the high priest and the council of Jews giving him permission to pursue and arrest Christians. But by God's grace, all of that power came crumbling down when he came face-to-face with the truth of the risen Lord Jesus Christ blinding him from heaven as he traveled on the Damascus Road. And the result for Paul was that he ultimately and immediately laid down his power in service of the truth. Paul tells us in Philippians 3, another account of his conversion, that whatever gain he had from his former life, whatever power and prestige and position he had, he now counts as loss for the sake of Christ. He says he counts it as rubbish, in order that he may gain Christ and be found in him, so that he might know him 
and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible he may attain the resurrection from the dead. That is what power in the service of truth looks like. And that is what we are called to as Christians. We are called to know the scriptures as our source of truth and to allow that truth to correct our power-hungry hearts, seeking not a power of our own, but rather the power of Christ to transform us and make us like Jesus with the hope that if we do, we won't just be like Jesus, a glorious truth in and of itself, but that one day we will be with him. And knowing we're called to power in the service of truth, our testimonies ought to reflect this. When we are asked by others to give a defense of what we believe, we should consider the power of our testimonies to draw attention to the glorious truths that have transformed our hearts. The truth of how Jesus has redirected our hearts and brought our stories in line with his story. Ours, like Paul's, are stories of truth and how it has the power to transform lives. Ours are stories of truth transforming the once powerful and the once powerful now in service of truth, that truth being King Jesus. And when we tell our testimonies like that, we will find that we have power that is entirely outside ourselves. It is the power of Christ's spirit at work in us, speaking his truth for the sake of saving others. And some will hear it from us as it is, the very power of God to save. But others will not, as we see in our text for today. Which brings us to our final point, canceled or the way of the cross. Our last observation about our world is that there are those who, when confronted by the truth, will seek to cancel it rather than embrace it. We see from our passage today that though the term cancel culture may not be new, the idea of canceling those who are seen as a threat certainly is not. So we read that after Paul says that Jesus sent him to the Gentiles, the crowds raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. For he should not be allowed to live. Though cancel culture itself is not new, what is new for many of us is that Christian beliefs and Christian ideals and the things that identify us with Christ here in America are moving more and more into the crosshairs of those driving the cancel culture movement. Christian opinions are called bigoted. Christian beliefs are labeled hate speech. Christian ideals are cast as harmful and dangerous to our society's well-being. So how should we respond when our testimonies lead to our being canceled rather than to conversions, as it did for Paul in our passage today? How should we respond when cancel culture comes for us? Well, I think we begin by reminding ourselves that we're in good company. Jesus was canceled when he came to save sinners. Those who sought to cancel him did so by secretly arresting him, falsely accusing him, stirring up a mob against him, and calling for his death. And with remarkable similarity, Luke describes the Jews' attempt to cancel Paul in our passage today. Paul, too, is unjustly apprehended, 
falsely accused, has a mob stirred up against him and hears calls for his death. And those similarities are no... uh, no, uh, Wow. (laughs) Coincidence. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Those similarities are no coincidence. They are to be expected for anyone who aims to follow Jesus. For Jesus himself said, if they persecute me, they will also persecute you. And as Paul would go on to say after his arrest and write to Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. To be canceled for Christ is to find ourselves on the way of the cross. For Jesus, the way of the cross was the way of winning salvation for sinners through the sacrifice of himself. While for us today, the way of the cross is the way of discipleship. It is the way of experiencing the same suffering Christ experienced. It is the way of becoming like Christ as we endure the suffering that he endured. It is the way of allowing that shared experience to transform us all the more into his image. And it is another opportunity for us to become people who submit our power to the truth. Rather than raging against cancel culture in an attempt to maintain our power, we can prayerfully look to the truth that just as Jesus was canceled, so also will we be canceled, but also to the truth that he who the world tried to cancel rose from the dead and now reigns from heaven. The truth that though culture may succeed in canceling us for a day, it will never be able to cancel Christ forever. So as we conclude today, let us look to Paul's example in this passage and pray that the Lord would lead us further down the way of the cross, a way that sees oppression as an opportunity to share Christ, a way that identifies with our enemies that we might better communicate Christ, a way that calls attention not to our story, but to God's story. And how he has redirected us into his truth and is transforming our hearts. And a way that expects persecution and cancellation and uses them to grow more and more into Christ's image. And let us walk that way together, encouraging one another every day, so long as it is called today, that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let's pray. And as I pray, I'd invite up the musicians and those who will be serving communion today. Lord, you know how much I have been challenged in the writing of this message. And so I ask that our hearts will be challenged by the word and the example that we see here by Paul. And I pray that you would allow these words, this example, to challenge us to become more like you. We read in the Gospel of John, it's full of grace and truth. Lord Jesus, we need help with that. The world around us, the changing world around us, can test us in ways that cause us to sacrifice both grace and truth. 
And Lord, we need you to lead us in the path of grace, of being Christ-like with those who, who seem to be so different from us. But at our core, we must know, are the same as us. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. And we ask that you would lead us in truth, not compromising what is true or where it comes from, teaching us to speak the truth with grace and with love, even to those who oppress us. This surely were to happen, would be a work of God and evidence of a transformed life. Lord, we want to be evidence of transformed lives. Help our lives to lend credit to the truth of Scripture such that the world around us might come to know you, a lost and dying world, a world oppressed by sin and Satan and the flesh that they too might be set free, the freedom that is found in the truth, Jesus Christ is Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.